0: Which one would you get? Uh, I don't know. Nathan Jr., I think. Give him here. Here's the instructions. Oh, he's beautiful. Yeah,
1: he's awful damn good. I
0: think I got the best one.
1: I bet they were all beautiful. All babies are beautiful. This one's awful damn good, though. Don't you cuss around him.
0: He's fine, he is. I think it's Nathan Jr.
1: We are doing the right thing, aren't we, Hi? I mean, they have more than they can handle.
0: Ah, well, honey, we've been over this and over this. And there's what's right and there's what's right. And never the twain shall meet. But don't you think his mom will be upset? I mean, overly? Well, of course she'll be upset, sugar. But she'll get over it. She's got four little babies, almost as good as this one. It's like when I was robbing convenience stores. I love him so much. I know you do, honey. I love him so much. I know you do.
1: Are you okay oh uh, yes i'm great oh great that's one of my favorite ones we've ever done welcome to your pick a film podcast i'm tatum and i'm geneva we are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. All right, we are back again. Hello, Geneva. Hello, Tatum. Um, I just want to say before we jump into talking about what we've watched this week, uh, for people who listened to our episode last week, we did initially say we were going to be reviewing Tropic Thunder this week. Uh, we decided against that, uh, because we wanted to choose a movie that we figured there was a good chance of both of us liking it. So, so yeah, obviously this week we are talking about the movie Raising Arizona. Um, so thanks for understanding that pivot, but, uh. We'll probably
0: cover Tropic Thunder at some point. I I would like to see it in full, but we thought it might be be a better choice for later on.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, But anyway, that being said, Geneva, can you share with us anything you've been watching this week?
0: Yes, uh, just a couple things. So uh, my roommate and I watched The Scarlet Pimpernel from 1982, which is a, uh, I think it was a TV movie version of The Scarlet Pimpernel with. Um, Anthony Andrews and Jane Seymour, and then a young 1980s Ian McKellen playing the villain. I love um, Ian McKellen. Oh, he's great. He he's is so, so great. great. Yeah, he's great as the villain in this. Scarlet Pimpernel is just a story that's kind of always been close to my heart. I grew up reading the book um, over and over again. I watched this um, TV movie. I watched the 1930s version. I love them all. This is um, I don't know. They they combine the the book with another book so it's not strictly faithful it kind of combined has a lot of other plot elements that are not in the original book um they have a whole plot line about trying to save the dauphin of france which is not in the original book um but it's still a good time um i really enjoy the chemistry between anthony andrews and jane seymour who jane seymour just one of the most gorgeous people who's ever lived um and yeah i i had a great time re-watching this um, for like the millionth time. Millionth <laughs> time. Um, the only other thing that I watched this week was a movie called The Country Girl. Uh, this was the movie that Grace Kelly won the Academy Award for Best Actress for controversially over uh, Judy Garland for A Star is Born. So I was very curious to see. <laughs> I'm, if I'm being honest, I'm not the hugest Grace Kelly fan. I, obviously she is gorgeous and she was in a lot of, you know, wonderful classic films. I just, I don't think she's the greatest actress in the world. I don't think she's terrible, but I don't think she's, I think she's sometimes the weaker link in a lot of the movies that she's in. This was the movie where it's like Grace Kelly is, she's getting all de-glammed. She's playing a part that's very unlike her other roles, kind of a more, um, normal looking um woman who's kind of been like had a really hard life i think she's pretty good in it i i do think it's a very good performance probably the best performance that i've seen from her um basically what the movie is about is she's the wife of a stage actor played by bing crosby who has become an alcoholic uh, ever since the death of their son and bing crosby gets a chance to lead a new. musical that's coming to Broadway. This is his first time leading a musical in a very long time. And he's trying to stay sober. She's trying to help him stay sober. But the producer of the musical, who's played by William Holden, has he kind of comes in with these very particular ideas about what is going on between the two of them. And he kind of fixates on Grace Kelly as a source of all of their problems. And the truth is a bit more complicated than that. But the, the main Um, interest of the movie is this kind of three-way dynamic where you're sort of there are scenes between Bing Crosby and William Holden where one thing is explained and then there are scenes between William Holden and Grace Kelly where another thing is explained and you're trying to figure out what is the actual truth what is actually going on in this marriage and I think it's it's pretty good Um, I do think it kind of takes a turn toward the more, more melodramatic toward the end kind of becomes a little bit less interesting once everything is out in the open. There are elements about it that I found a little bit sexist, which is a bit disappointing, because the first two thirds of the movie, she's such a dynamic and interesting character. And you really want her to, you know, come out on on her own and really succeed. And then the way that her storyline is resolved, you're kind of like, well, I feel like she's just kind of, this is not really what I want for her. You know, if she wants it for herself, I guess, but this is this does not seem like the great a great ending for her, but I don't know. It's an interesting movie. And if you're a fan of Grace Kelly or you're interested in seeing her in her in a different mode, um, I definitely would recommend it. So, yeah, The Country Girl. other, And that's pretty much it for what I've seen this week. Sounds like Julie Garland should have won for A Star is Born. Oh, Judy Garland 100% should have won yeah. for A Star is Born. Like, no, again, this is probably Grace Kelly's best role, at least that I've seen. And I do think she's very good in it. If it was not Judy Garland she was competing against, I'd be like, sure.
1: But no, Judy Garland 100% should have won. Yeah, she was fantastic in that film. Um, <clears throat> I have not seen the the Grace Kelly one, but I have seen Judy Garland's version of A Star is Born.
0: and It's pretty undeniable.
1: Yeah. Um, it would take a powerhouse performance to to beat her out, I guess. Um, but anyway, cool. Well, I'm glad you got to see that movie finally. I remember you talking about that when we watched A Star Is Born Together and you were like, Wait, Grace Kelly beat her this year? I need to see this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm glad you finally got to it. Um so yeah, as far as what I've been watching, I haven't watched too much, but um, Wes Anderson actually released a series of shorts on Netflix, um, and they're all adaptations of short stories written by the author Roald Dahl, um, which he also adapted uh, one of his stories for one of his previous films, Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is An incredible movie.
0: Yeah, I had forgotten that Fantastic Mr. Fox was originally a Roald Dahl story. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, if you haven't seen Fantastic Mr. Fox, highly recommend. Even if you're not a Wes Anderson fan, Fantastic Mr. Fox is, I feel like, universally... I feel like anyone could like that movie, so highly recommend. Um, I, think I need
0: to see that one again because I think I saw it when I was too young to understand the mm. Wes Anderson sensibility. Mm-hmm. I was like, I was a child, and I think my parents were like, "It's an animated movie; it'll be
1: you'll love it." And I was like,
0: "What is this? I'm sorry, what's going on?" That's so I need to so see it again.
1: Interesting. That's very different from my relationship with Fantastic Mr. Fox because I remember so Fantastic Mr. Fox was the first Wes Anderson movie I ever saw, and I saw it very. Very shortly after it came out, it was like randomly playing on television one day, and I'd heard of it. And so I was like, okay, it's on, I'll watch it. And I happened to start it when it was probably about 10 minutes in or whatever. And I was like, yeah, we'll just see what happens. And I was, I mean, I couldn't look away from the TV. I was absolutely like in love with it. So I was, I mean, it, it was right after it came out. So I was relatively young, and I'd never seen Wes Anderson. And I was like, oh, animated movie cool and then i was like oh my god this is so good (laughs) um but anyway yeah so i watched uh he released four shorts on netflix um they're called the wonderful story of henry sugar the swan the rat catcher and poison um the wonderful story of henry sugar is about i think it's like 47 minutes long and then the other three are less than 20 minutes. So I watched all four of them kind of one after the other in one sitting. It was such a good time. Uh, it it reminded me of why I like Wes Anderson. So granted, I have not seen Asteroid City, which is his most recent release. Um, but prior to Asteroid City, his last couple films I haven't been a huge fan of. Um, the French Dispatch in particular, I felt like, it would have been a lot better if he had released it in shorts, as opposed to one film that was a bunch of shorts put together. Um, So I liked that this route, he actually made them separate shorts. Um, And I was like, these, these are amazing. I mean, they, they differ in, um, in terms of like how much I like them story wise. Um, I think that the wonderful story of Henry sugar is like hands down my favorite. I think it's, almost perfect in terms of the story, the cast, the acting, but also the practical effects and how it's shot and put together and the production design. It's There's so much of it that I don't even understand what's real and what's not and how the transitions are happening and um, just the way that actors are delivering their dialogue. It's really, really incredible. I mean, my jaw, like my mouth was on the floor. I was like, I cannot even comprehend how this was made. It's very impressive. Um and then the other ones I I did like the other ones but uh they kind of went down a little bit in terms of how much I liked them as time went on. Uh Poison I like. It's very funny. It's 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 very funny. It's basically Benedict Cumberbatch like laying <laughs> like on a bed completely still because there's a snake on his stomach that's going to bite him and kill him and he's like if I move it will bite me and I will die. Someone please help. <laughs> you know, it's it's very funny. Um, and then the other two, the swan and the rat catcher, they're, they're good. Um, but in terms of, like, the swan is it, actually very tragic and very depressing and very sad. Um, but you don't really recognize that until the end. It's kind of just like, where's the story going? Visually, it's not as captivating as the others um but by the end it's a gut punch it's like whoa um I I, whoa this is like it's pretty dark at the end um and then the rat catcher is it's good it's a little bit more funny it has Ralph Fiennes Ray Fiennes playing a rat catcher who is probably a rat but we don't actually know (laughs) um and it almost has like a horror aspect to it so it's really interesting it's like the wonderful story of henry sugar is very much so like a classic wes anderson like drama that's got some humor in it and then poison is very much so just like a comedy and then the swan is like a tragic depression story and then the rat catcher is like his version of a horror film so it's really interesting um so yeah, a Wes
0: Anderson horror film sounds really intriguing.
1: After watching the Ratcatcher, I'm like, he needs to make a horror film because it was quite scary the way that he shot certain things. Because yeah, anyway, um, so it was just cool to see how his unique style lends itself to lots of different genres. Um, and I've never seen him direct his actors to deliver dialogue quite like this before. I mean, Dev Patel is speaking. So, he's speaking so quickly and you don't know what he's saying. Blah, 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 blah. It, it's really, really good. Um, so I would highly recommend if anyone is a Wes Anderson fan, check it out. Um, and I would say if you're not a Wes Anderson fan, at least watch the wonderful, the wonderful story of Henry Sugar. That one I think is just universally um, going to connect with lots of people. The other ones, maybe not so much. Um but yeah, they're really easy watches. They're super short. Uh, they're basically bedtime stories for adults. It feels like Ray Fiennes is sitting there just reading you a bedtime story before you go to bed. Um, that has just beautiful calming visuals, uh, except for the Rat Catcher, which has some horrifying visuals. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was very very good. I'm glad to watch something from Wes Anderson that I really enjoyed because when he hits it out of the park he really hits it out of the park and then when he doesn't hit it out of the park it just leaves me wanting because I'm like oh it could have it could have been so much it like it's so close but I feel disappointed um but I felt very satisfied watching these so um yeah but that's all all I've been watching this week so that's awesome Uh, yeah I've seen the ads for um
0: for those shorts and I was thinking about checking them out and I definitely will after your recommendation I've not historically been the hugest Wes Anderson fan but in the last couple years I've caught up on his earlier films and really liked them so Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that will be a gateway into me being able to rewatch and and appreciate better some of his later work
1: yeah I definitely I think you would enjoy the wonderful story of Henry Sugar and probably Poison as well Uh, The Swan might lose you a little bit. I don't know. The Swan lost me a little bit until the end. And I was like, oh, this is where the story's going. And it's really upsetting. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I recommend you give it a shot. So yeah. Um, But all of that being said, um, let's switch to Raising Arizona, which is another film that's kind of like lighthearted and a mixture of lots of genres. And in my opinion, just kind of a pleasant watch that makes you feel good inside um and maybe that's not your your reaction at all but that's kind of how I see it um <laughs> but yeah so um today on the show we are discussing the Coen brothers second second insane I'm just gonna like hold that in the air for a minute yeah this is their second feature film okay everyone hear that cool moving on Um, (laughs) their second feature film Raising Arizona released in 1987. The film tells the story of an ex-con named High or H.I. and his wife, Ed. The two meet several times as Ed, a local cop, is one is the one assigned to taking High's mugshot and logging him into the books. Each time he is incarcerated for robbing convenience stores. Eventually, High falls in love with Ed and decides to get straight so that they can marry and begin a happy life together. Things get complicated, however, when Ed, who desperately wants to have children, finds out that she is barren. The two then decide to kidnap a child from a group of quintuplets whose parents have, quote, more than they can handle, unquote. According to Ed, not according to the parents themselves. According to Ed. Um, At first, it appears that they have achieved the family life that they have long wanted. But the excitement fades quickly as many try to claim or reclaim the baby Nathan Jr. for themselves. Even reading that, it's like, what, what is this movie? (laughs) It's such a brilliant premise. Um, But yes. So after the critical success of their first film, Blood Simple, released just a few years earlier in 1984, the Coen brothers wanted to pivot and make another film that had an entirely different tone, one that was more upbeat. After completing the script in three and a half months, the Coen brothers, with a budget of five and a half million dollars, shot the film in 10 weeks. Though Raising Arizona was not a critical success at the time, it was a huge financial success, earning about $29 million at the box office. Um, Relationships behind the camera were not as successful, however. The Coen brothers, who have now formed a reputation for being extremely particular and calculated in how they like to shoot, were difficult for Nicolas Cage to work with. Uh, frustrated at times that his suggestions were being ignored. Cage has been quoted saying that Joel and Ethan have a very strong vision and I've learned how difficult it is to accept another artist's vision. Um, regardless, Raising Arizona proved that the Cohen brothers were here to stay and had a bright future as filmmakers and screenwriters ahead of them. And just a fun fact about this movie is that while creating the dialect for the characters in this movie, Joel and Ethan actually created a hybrid of like a local dialect and also (laughs) what they assumed the reading material of these locals would be, which they thought would be magazines and the Bible. (laughs) So kind of taking that context, that was how they uh, came up with the dialect for the characters in this film. Um, And then one thing I just also wanted to throw out there, which... You know, it's just me saying things because I have a chip on my shoulder. But so this was their second film. Their first film was Blood Simple. They had no film experience making Blood Simple. They had no, oh my gosh. like, they didn't go to film school. They'd never used a camera. They'd never written a script. Out of nowhere, they made Blood Simple. <laughs> they somehow raised one and a half million dollars in a year to make Blood Simple. I How? And then now they're making Raising Arizona and now they're obviously legends that all of us know today. But I just wanted to mention that because again, I have a chip on my shoulder. I'm happy for them. It's great, but also like life isn't fair anyway. um, <laughs> um But yeah, so yeah, I, all of that being said, we can go ahead and jump into just the specifics of uh, this movie itself. So Geneva, can you share with us your relationship to this movie and your experience while watching it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'd never seen this movie before. I've seen quite a few other Coen Brothers movie, by no means the majority of their filmography because they have a, a lot of movies, but I've seen several and I've liked to loved all Coen Brothers movie that I've scene and this was no exception Yeah. I really, really enjoyed this movie Woohoo! it's very funny very charming it has been it had been on my list for quite a while because you know people make lists of you know the best comedies or the best coen brothers movies this is always close to the top I I feel like I'd avoid not avoided it but it kept getting bumped down from the top just because I can sometimes be a little sensitive when it comes to the way that babies and small children are used in films, in terms of, you know, babies being put put in positions of danger, the idea of kidnapping, things like that. I can, you know, I can just kind of be sensitive about that sometimes. Um, but I didn't need to have worried about this movie. They do a really good job of maintaining the right tone. Um, when I was looking at letterboxed reviews after finishing this movie, the the phrase that kept coming up was looney tunes cartoon which is i think is very accurate there's a very zany looney tunes cartoonish sensibility to a lot of the action in this movie and so you know gunshots are flying all over the place and the baby keeps falling off of cars <laughs> and like all and yet he's completely unscathed and it's just it's this crazy heightened world where violence is not real you know everyone is going to be fine um and i think it really works for the subject matter you know this this would not work as well as it did if they didn't have such a great grasp of tone which again makes it insane that this is their second movie and the first time doing a comedy because i know that their first film was a very different genre um this movie is extremely well made as well like there are just some shots that i was just how how did they film this (laughs) how how did they do this Um, there's some stunts in this movie that you would not expect for a comedy. I mean, I guess it's an action comedy. But yeah, there are also parts that (laughs) like, there's that chase sequence where they start running through the house that really reminded me of Point Break, which is Mm -hmm. came out like three or four years later. Uh, which is an action movie I love. And I was like, I wonder if Catherine Bigelow saw Raising Arizona and decided to to take that on. Um, But yeah, and I think the performances are very, very good. It's really interesting to hear that Nicolas Cage clashed with the Coen brothers a bit, because obviously he is such a strong and idiosyncratic performer, but I also think of him as being someone who's very good at being able to bend to the needs of the film. And even if it was difficult for him, you know, especially... I don't know how far he was into his career, but, you know, a much younger actor than he is now. I think he did a really good job in the end of um, kind of channeling all of his strengths as a performer into what this film needs. Um, So, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this movie because I liked it a lot. And it's also kind of unexpectedly poignant. Like it's a Looney Tunes cartoon for 85 minutes. And then at the end, all of a sudden it's like, oh, and now I'm Kind of tearing up a bit.
1: <laughs> What's the you know, purpose in a way of that family? I family? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. I'm glad you chose it.
1: Yeah, me too. Um, yeah, it's interesting because Nicolas Cage, like in terms of his career, he it he was really just at this time coming out with a lot of great roles. I mean, he was in Raising Arizona, and then I think Moonstruck was his next film after this. And oh, then, I was wondering
0: if Moonstruck was before or after. Okay, yeah.
1: Yeah, Moonstruck was after. And then, you know, a few years later, he worked with David Lynch on Wild at Heart. And it's just like from the very beginning, he's just been taking so many different types of roles that are giving him room and space to kind of be wild and weird, but also show off his acting chops. I don't know. I. I don't know. One of these days, I'm going to do the thing and just watch all of Nicolas Cage's movies in order and just kind of study. Did he always know who he was as an actor from the very beginning? And has he just been consistent with that throughout or has he gone through different phases? I don't know. Um, I've seen a fair number of his films, but he's been in like 500. So. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, I just find him to be a really fascinating actor um, and where this falls specifically in his career, I find to be really interesting. Um, but yeah, so anyway, yeah, so I'm really glad you liked this movie. I hoped that you would. Um, but so I saw this movie for the first time a few years back. Um, I think I've mentioned on this podcast before that a few years ago I had a list of that I considered to be, you know, if you're going to call yourself a film person, you have to have seen all of these movies. And on that list was a bunch of Coen Brothers films because they're very well-known directors, very highly respected. Um, But the handful of movies that I had seen from them prior to this list, I wasn't really a huge fan of. And so I was never really itching to see more of their movies. But then when I went through this list, I was like, okay, I have to do this. I have to watch Coen Brothers movies and um i realized going through that list that i actually love the coen brothers i've seen i think probably 95% of their movies at this point um i love the films that they make i love their tone they're so they have such a great idea of how they want their films to look and which you know everybody knows they are known for showing up on set having the entire film storyboarded and their entire script's written, and they're like, we will not change the storyboard, and we will not change the script. It is what it is. Um, And I think that really comes through in the films that they make. They have a very clear vision, and it's beautiful. Um, But that being said, yeah, I was very pleasantly surprised by this movie the first time I saw it. I just went into it like, okay, I'm watching a Coen Brothers film. I didn't expect to, like, cry laugh. (laughs) Um, I... I just I have such a distinct memory in my brain of how the babies are shot in that scene when um when high breaks into the home <laughs> oh to steal God. the kid- like the way that they're shooting all of these babies crawling around the floor and it's just <laughs> it's incredible how they're shooting these kids and um and it's just i mean the introduction to the film is so great how we have this whole you know, backstory slash montage of him getting arrested and then, you know, meeting Ed multiple times. And then, you know, it's just, and the score is so good of like this yodeling man with a banjo. Um, yeah, I just, I remember after watching this movie for the first time, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was so funny. Um, top to bottom, I think I thought it was an excellent film. And so this was my second time watching it since then. Um, I honestly think I like it more this time around, if that's even possible. Um, I just, it's so, it's so funny and it's so well-made. It's really impressive um, that this is their second film. I mean, it's, it's insane. Um, You know, gotta love some Frances McDormand. She was discovered by the Coen brothers in their first film, Blood Simple, which is incredible. Um, And they really solidified from the very beginning. Like we're going to be directors that work with the same actors over and over because they've worked with Francis McDormand many times, obviously John Goodman a gazillion times. Um, So yeah, this movie is just uh, super fun. Um, I think that you could be nitpicky about it and be like, what's the purpose of this motorcycle guy? He's kind of tacked on like, where is he coming from. But the film is just so much fun and you could argue is there really any logic to this story at all? <laughs> um that it doesn't really matter. So it's a fun time. I love this movie. I think it's super well made um and I think it's it's unique to see comedies that aren't just funny but also are very creative in terms of how they shoot and like beautiful to look at at the same time. Um yeah this movie's very special
0: sorry i was just gonna say this is why game night which came out like four or five years ago is such a great modern day comedy that you don't see very often because that's also very visually inventive yeah this movie sorry as you were talking i was looking up the cinematographer for this movie was barry sonnenfeld who's Mm -hmm. a director in his own right who did the adams family films and the men in black films among other things like he's a a very visually inventive you know very talented director in his own right, and he was the cinematographer for this. So there's just there's just an insane level of you know talent and skill who's got together and was able to work on this movie together and produce something really special.
1: Yeah, and I think he's collaborated collaborated with the Coen brothers a few times. I don't know the other films they've worked on together, but again, the Coen brothers like to work with the same people, so they very famously have collaborated with Roger Deakins a lot. Um, yeah. And um,
0: one thing that I learned recently when uh, the Blank Jack podcasted a series on Sam Raimi is that the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi were, have been friends for a long time. I think they might have been roommates for a point. And you can see a lot of visual influences in Sam Raimi's films and, and the Coen brothers, like the ways that they would have influenced each other. You know, they have similar sensibilities when it comes to kind of action comedy, um, which I think is very cool. Yeah.
1: I always love hearing those stories about people who, like, who seem unrelated and then you find out that they were roommates. It's it's just so strange how that happens. Um, but I guess it makes sense. So, um, oh, my gosh, Geneva, guess what? Mm-hmm. I just I just looked him up. Barry Sonnenfeld. He was mm-hmm. the cinematographer for When Harry Met Sally. <laughs> oh, I did not realize that. Oh, man, yeah. we should have mentioned that in our um, When Harry Met Sally episode. Yeah, so he worked with them on Blood Simple, which I did know, and then Raising Arizona. He also was a cinematographer for Big, When Harry Met Sally, and their film Miller's Crossing, which is an interesting movie, Miller's Crossing. Um, but yeah, anyway, I think- I really, now after this,
0: I really want to go and watch Blood Simple to see, because mm-hmm. like so much of what I think of as the Coen Brothers brand and sensibility and- dialogue style and shooting style is so solidified here and i'm curious you know how much of it that is in place for blood simple too because when you were talking about the idea of the dialect that they created for this film like so it's such a classic coen brothers dialect that way of speaking where it's kind of the the southern accents and kind of talking in circles and saying something really inane but then using all these like really fancy words and saying some really deep piece of philosophy that you've quoted from, you know, the Bible or from, you know, some random philosopher but kind of twisted a little bit. It's it's all there, you know. That's just something they um I I just think of as being the the Cohen brothers style and it's all, you know, fully formed in this movie.
1: Yeah, I I I just I love their style so much. I yeah, w- when I went through their filmography a few years back, I was just like one after the other, after the other, after the, I mean, it's just incredible. Some people just, some people are just geniuses. They just are. And whether it's their first film or their 15th film, like the, everything they make is going to be good because they just, they're the one in a million, you know? Yeah. Um, just last
0: night, um, my roommate was watching The Ballad of Buster Scruggs and mm-hmm. I was doing something else, so I couldn't join her for most of it, but I uh, caught the end, the final 20 minutes or so. And then it was just so funny watching Raising Arizona right afterwards and being like, wow, it's, you know, 25, 30 years later and it's, they're coming, you know, the themes that they're interested in, the way that they write their characters, um, the way that they set up, you know, the the storytelling, like it's all so clear and consistent and it's so well done. Yeah, yeah.
1: Has the Blank Chip podcast, have they done the Coen Brothers? Did you say that they did?
0: No, they did Sam Raimi. They've not oh, done okay. the Coen brothers yet. I would love
1: love for them to do it. Can we, and I can cut this out if it's too much, but would you be willing to look at their filmography and just tell me which of their films you've seen? I'm genuinely curious.
0: Yeah, actually, I was looking that up while we were t-
1: <laughs> talking. Let me
0: pull it back up. Um, <clears throat> it's so funny how Wikipedia has, you click on Joel and Ethan Coen and it directs to the Coen brothers. Yep. Um, let's see. Where's, there it is. Okay. So Raising Arizona, um, Fargo, Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? Um, And then Not Until the... Yeah, True Grit, Inside Llewyn Davis, Hail Caesar, and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. So more their recent recent stuff. stuff, yeah. And then Raising Arizona and Fargo, and Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? I need to see The Big Lebowski. I need to see Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Hudsucker Proxy. I've been wanting to see Bird After Reading and A Serious Man for a long time. Yeah, there's a lot I need to see.
1: Okay. Yeah, I've seen... Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, Fargo, Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, True Grit, Inside Lewin Davis, Hell Caesar. <laughs> I've i I've seen like most of their I've seen basically everything except for mm-hmm. Blood Simple and Did you say you the man who seen, wasn't there? Did you say you haven't seen the Hudsucker proxy
0: or you have? I have not. That's one where um There's a clip from it that goes around Twitter every year or so. And every time I see it, it makes me laugh so much. And I think, oh, I need to see the Hudsucker Proxy. And then I haven't gotten around to it yet.
1: Yeah, I would be interested to, well, it's on my list, but I would be really interested to talk with you about A Serious Man. It's a very interesting, very interesting film, um, as are all of their movies. But anyway, so back to this movie specifically. Um, So (laughs) I, I was trying to take notes while watching it. And it literally just ended up me writing down, being me writing down like a bunch of quotes because this movie is just so funny. Um, But I guess I kind of want to start off by talking about this whole opening montage that we have that kind of introduces us to, it introduces us to Ed, it introduces us to High, and just kind of them as two individuals before we get to the actual plot of what the rest of the movie is going to be um so yeah what do you think about this opening sequence in in any sort of way in terms of how it's put together or how it introduces the characters or anything like that
0: oh man the opening sequence is so good it's um I love the fact that it's all wordless I mean there's narration over top from high explaining what's going on but it's all you know just seeing the characters um turn to the right (laughs) (laughs) the chemistry between Nicolas Cage and Helen Hunt um Helen Hunter. Holly Hunter. Sorry, I keep doing that. Not Helen Hunt. Holly Hunter. I get them confused um, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the chemistry between Nicolas Cage and Holly Hunter is so good for a minute one. Like the second they see each other, you can tell that they have a connection. And the idea of an ex con and a, a cop getting together over the course of, you know, a series, like they don't even talk to each other before he proposes, really. It's just a series of meetings while he's being booked in for like year-long stretches for robbery um, is just so funny and um, yeah I mean it, you know it establishes early on this sort of to the extent that there is any sort of theme or character development um, for this characters but this idea that High is this person who doesn't really he's pretty aimless he doesn't really have a purpose and he's just willing to keep on living this constant cycle of go out Rob a convenience store, immediately get caught because he's a terrible thief and then get thrown in prison for a certain amount of time. And Ed is the one who breaks him out of it, who who re- makes him realize like, oh, there's something more that I could try and, and get out of life. And yeah, their, I don't know, their love story is so sweet. Like, this movie is so sweet and so romantic in a really weird, hilarious way, you know? <laughs> it's just like, as soon as he realizes he wants her, he would do anything for her. He would move the world for her. And even though he is, you know, he still has to work on himself and getting himself out of his, his old crime uh, committing ways. Like, they, he loves her so much and it's very sweet. Anyway, yeah, I love the opening scene. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think, I think it's great. I love movies where you don't, you don't think there's going to be a title sequence, but then they shock you with a title sequence and you just say, oh, that whole thing was just an intro. And if that's the intro then I'm totally down for the rest of this ride, you know, and there's a few movies that do that or that have done that to me where I wasn't expecting there to be one. And then there is like, uh Park Chan-wook's decision to leave does that and then Pulp Fiction does that you know there's lots of movies where drive my car famously has a title sequence like 50 minutes into the movie oh that's what I meant drive my car not decision to leave my bad um but yeah and and I I just I love this opening sequence I think like you said it does such a good job of establishing these characters and their relationship to each other and I also just love that we know exactly who high is before we even know what he does because his hair is absolutely (laughs) insane. His clothing, like he is such, you know, from the very beginning, this is a distinct unique person who's kind of not kind of, who's definitely quirky, but also doesn't really know it. And even if he does, he doesn't care because he's just being who he is and I think that that's so great that we learned that from the very beginning, but he's also kind of an air, airhead. Like <laughs> he's not really the brightest bulb um, in the bunch. Um, and the then- character
0: design is so good and the casting is so good. The character design married to the casting is so good because, like you say, you know, his hair is insane. His clothes are all mismatched and sloppy. And it gives you this, you know, the idea of this character. But Nicolas Cage, like especially Nicolas Cage, he has these very soulful, sensitive eyes. Mm-hmm. And so you get this sense of this duality of this person where he is like, you know, he's a criminal. He's a slob. He's he's irresponsible and reckless. But he also has this very sweet, sensitive interior to him, you know. Um, it just makes him feel like such a
1: full, like well-rounded character. And I think it helps you empathize with them throughout the rest of the story because it establishes, in my opinion, that he's not hes not a bad guy. Like he's not a criminal who's wanting to hurt people. Like they literally establish that whenever he robs convenience stores, his weapons are empty. And he says, well, I don't want to hurt anyone. You know, like <laughs> hes he's really just an idiot who's just, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. You never
0: even, you never really get a sense of why he robs convenience stores to begin with because it's not like he's incapable of getting a job. You know, it doesn't seem like he wants the high. It's just like he's bored and it's the only thing that he can think of to do. You know? Yeah. It just,
1: it makes him feel alive, I guess. And it's the only way, I guess, he knows how to, I don't know. But it just, it does such a good job of establishing who he is, but also helping us know that even though the rest of this movie, he's going to be committing a crime that is kidnapping a child. You don't feel disgusted or horrified by that because they've already established the type of person that he is, which is pretty harmless. And he, his intentions for, for better or for worse are like kind of wholesome. I don't know.
0: There's this innocence to him, you know, like he, he doesn't fully understand the, the impact of what he's doing.
1: Yeah. And then the contrast between him having his look where it looks like a tornado flew him in the air and just <laughs> landed him on the ground. The contrast between his look and then Ed's look, which is very like professional, put together. She's in a uniform, very like formal. Her hair is slicked back. She's got
0: her, you know, her police uniform is freshly starched, all that.
1: Yeah, she, she's very much so someone who follows the rules. She is a rule follower. And uh, which I think also is a great setup for the rest of the movie in terms of they are going to be breaking a pretty serious law, like stealing an infant from a family. Um, And it's just this interesting dynamic that's set up of she has these things that she wants to do. And because she's married to someone who's kind of dumb and careless, she needs that in order to like help her loosen up a bit to actually break the rules. You get this idea that, you know, she helps him like pull himself together a little bit and like have a life purpose that's not just doing dumb things but then he also helps her loosen up a little bit and it's just this beautiful um dynamic that I think is established very quickly um I think also you know we've kind of touched on this but this opening sequence really just establishes what the tone of the film is going to be very light humorous kind of silly like We're not living in the real world here, you know. Um, It's just we're just here to watch these weirdos live their lives that are kind of dumb, um, but also full of love. And I think it's very masterful, masterful how they establish that. And his protective nature when he finds out about her boyfriend or or no, her fiancé. Who <laughs> my fiance? Yeah, her her fiance who left her or cheated on her. I forget which one it is. And he's like, I love how you she says, him, "You tell him lo- to come find me. I'll be waiting." You tell him that I'm in cell block. Blah 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 blah. Thank blah. So cute. I love the way that she pronounces
0: fiance incorrectly, yes. and then he pronounces it correctly. Yes, my fiance. <laughs> um. Yeah, and then and it's sorry. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Just in this opening sequence, I think it just also establishes something that is so what I love so much about the Coen brothers, which is their ability to find humanity in such a wide range of people. You know, they have so much affection for all of their characters and so much of their movies and this movie in particular is, you know, it's set in among criminals, you know, jailbirds and um, scummy businessmen and bounty hunters. And, you know, just like, people who are not the most reputable people who are constantly trying to do you know act selfishly or impulsively and they're doing crimes and they're doing things that in the real world world would help others although not really in this world because this is a looney tunes world but there's just so much love that they clearly have for their characters and there's so much humanity that they're and empathy that they're able to find in all of the characters and so like you know he goes into the jail and you just get a sense that every single person around him in the jail has a story of their own to tell and that he you know he has affection for them all the or the directors have affection for them all and then they get out and with Gail and Evel like they're also these fully rounded characters who are terrible influences but also have a humanity and empathy of their own and yeah it's just it's all established from the the very first part of this movie
1: i really like that moment when um when high is laying in his bunk bed and he's like you don't really it's hard for you to think while you're in prison because blah 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 blah," and then you see that his conversation with the with his bunk mate above him he's talking about how like yeah you know blah blah blah, when i was growing up we used to eat sand and then high's like you used to eat sand. (laughs) He's like, yeah, (laughs) it's like, okay, interesting. Um, because that also kind of clues in that high is an idiot, but he also is not fully an idiot. Like he's able to identify, oh, this might be kind of like weird. I don't know. Um, eating sand, like (laughs) that doesn't, I'm I'm pretty sure that'll kill you. (laughs) Like if you, if you just straight up eat sand, um, But yeah, so we get to kind of the conclusion of this sequence, and one of the things I love, which also continues, you know, this tone is so established and it's carried on throughout, but um, when the reverend or whoever it is marries them and they both say, I do, and then the reverend goes, okay, then... (laughs)
0: <laughs> I forgot about that
1: it's like all right, okay, then I guess uh, we're here, and all right, we're married now. We'll see how this goes, yeah, I just think it's such a such a great opening, and i just I love the score to this movie i I just I love the banjo with the yodelling guy like it's it's so great, and then that's what we hear as the title sequence kind of rolls up and it's got the sunset behind it, you know. Um, it's just, it's, it's such a great, I love a good opening montage. I just love, I actually should make a letterbox list about this. Just movies that have the best opening sequences because, you know, I, I mean, tangent, but I just love movies that have great opening sequences like Baby Driver. I remember when I saw Baby Driver, I was like, oh man, that's such a great opening sequence. The movie kind of falls apart as it keeps going, but it's, it's really hard to establish you know a film so in such a um like get the viewer invested so quickly um but anyway so yeah so after this we we kind of learn that uh like I said before you know I'm actually this is still in the opening sequence but we find out that Ed is barren even though she really 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 wants to have children um which again creating this sense of empathy for the characters you know um and creates this justifiable logic as to why they (laughs) steal this baby. Um, Because we find out that there's this guy who owns a furniture store whose name is... (laughs) whose name is uh what is it something arizona what's his first name Nathan arizona nathan arizona yeah nathan arizona is like a wealthy person in town who owns this furniture store who's always trying to sell furniture and they have five kids and i do actually think that they are quoted saying that they have more than they can handle because they're just like interviewing them and one of the things they say in like a newspaper article is like yeah we have more than we can handle five kids and then you know hi and ed obviously kind of Take that to an extreme, take it literally. Yeah. yeah, they take it very literally. What they mean when they say <laughs> that they have Which, more than they can handle.
0: What one thing to note again, just with empathy for the characters too, that I I thought was kind of an important detail in establishing why they take the step they do. So Ed is infertile, but they also can't adopt because High is a right know, has served multiple sentences in jail, and right. you know from the outside it's like yeah I, I can understand why. a um multiple time convict like that would be against the adoption rules, but you know the these characters they there's such the film builds such empathy for them and for their situation that you're like, well, these two they still have some things to figure out, but they clearly have a lot of love for each other and a lot of love to to give to a potential child, and yeah, I just like that little detail of like you know they're in this situation where there's no other recourse for this love that they
1: have, that they, they really want to give to a child, and they're not able to. Right, yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, pretty quickly, we learn that High and Ed are creating a plan to go steal uh, one of the children for their own. <laughs> so um, we have this incredible, I mean, my favorite sequence in the whole movie, where High brings a ladder to the Arizona's <laughs> home and he climbs up to the children's bedroom and is trying to decide which of the five children <laughs> to take uh and then complete chaos I was like, ensues what exactly is he doing because he like keeps taking them
0: out and like putting them down and then they're toddlers so of course they're crawling all over the place and he's like what oh no
1: they're like they keep escaping and I'm like well stop taking them out of the crib <laughs> and he keeps doing these like things where he's just p- putting a baby on a chair and I'm like that's not like don't <laughs> not put a baby on a chair there. and leave them there my favorite is when he's like he's tra- crawling into the crib to try and get one of the babies that crawled out of the crib and the other baby like leaps down onto it yep yep so funny and there's also a, se- uh, a moment when you see him just like push two of the babies' heads <laughs> over while they're sitting in the crib he's just like lay down Um but yeah I just this scene is so impressive to me because it's so funny in terms of um you know we have this outrageous concept of him trying to steal one of five babies but then it's kind of um juxtaposed with seeing the Arizona parents sitting downstairs they're hearing all of these noises but they won't go up there they're just staring at the ceiling and I'm like do you want to go check on them like why are you waiting so long um so I love those the juxtaposition of you know we we cut to having all of this chaos upstairs and then we cut to downstairs it's just them sitting there looking up staring at the ceiling so perfectly calm and ordered you know they're just kind of like
0: sitting and reading the newspaper and they're just like "Hmm." but actually there is one tiny little detail in that where um the first baby starts crying and the dad is like that sounds like Larry, Mm because, you know, of the five kids, it's like Harry, Barry, Larry, Gary and Nathan Jr., which is very funny. Um, But I did like that moment because it's just a sense of like the Nathan Arizona and his wife, I forget what her name is. um, You know, they're very, very different from High and Ed. They're, you know, they're wealthy kind of probably snobby people their house is huge and gorgeous um not my style but you know it's like very (laughs) much more expensive but you do get a sense that like even though they do have all of these kids and they're very different personalities i do think there is a sense that they do love their kids so it's not like i don't know i think this movie does a really good job of riding the line where you're like well i think it would be good for the kid to be with high and Ed and experience something very different for a short period of time but at the same time, it's not like they're going back to parents. The The child is going back in the end to parents who don't love them. Like, I I think it does a very good job of establishing that even though Nathan Arizona and his wife are very, very different in their situation and their personalities than High and Ed, they do still love their kids. And they do really care
1: when one of them is kidnapped. Different parenting styles, you know? Um, But yeah, so I just... I just want to kind of talk a little bit about how this scene with the babies is shot. Because again, that was the thing that really, really drew me aback the first time I watched this movie and what has stuck with me even up until watching this movie again. Just the way that they shoot this whole sequence with these babies, it's it's like a masterwork of cinematography, (laughs) but they're filming babies. You know, like that moment you're talking about where the kid climbs over the... The crib and falls down the way that that shot of the camera being like the point of view of the child and then you know we have the camera you you know on a dolly following these babies while they crawl on the floor and (laughs) it's just it's so it's so impressive how it shot in my opinion like it looks beautiful it's I'm just like the, the 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 Not to use the word juxtaposition again, but like the juxtaposition of having something shot in a way that is so masterful and beautiful and interesting and dynamic with complete nonsense (laughs) and chaos is so interesting to me. Um, But yeah, I'm curious, like when when you were watching this scene, were you struck by how it was shot as well? Because I just was completely blown away. Yeah, there were multiple multiple
0: times in this movie where I just had to kind of sit back and be like, this cinematography is incredible. There's so, so much moving camera. There's so much handheld. There's so much POV um, that's happening in this film. Again, you know, you can really see the, the cross influences between them and Sam Raimi. And um, it's just, it's very impressive. It's so well choreographed. I mean... You know, they always say never work with animals or children because it's just, you know, they're just a nightmare to work with. They do such a great job of, A, selecting five, you know, probably ten, because I'm sure they probably had to have doubles, um, infants who all look exactly the same, (laughs) (laughs) and then just choreographing all of their movements the babies are turning and smiling and getting up and down at just the right moment to make it really funny the way the camera is moving around and interacting you get the sense you're right with high and feeling like this whole situation is just spinning out of control and he turns around and there's suddenly another baby in a place where they, they should be. One's feet. crawling out the door <laughs> yeah oh my goodness so yeah it's it's very impressive and then it also helps too that um just a a word of appreciation for the production design in this movie. All of the the sets are so well-designed. I mean, the way that they're high in Ed's house is designed is this kind of, you know, 1980s, lower-class uh, mobile home. It's perfect. And the design of um, the the baby's little... Not little. It's a very big nursery <laughs> and it's so colorful. It has this really deep blue carpeting. You really do. It gives a perfect sense of them. This as the house of an older couple who suddenly has kids and they just went all out and bought every single toy that they could possibly find. And the room is just wall to wall, you know, just various stuffed animals and toys and um, pictures on the walls and everything like that. And, it, you know, it it all works together really, really well.
1: Yeah, I I find it inter- not interesting, but when you were talking about um the babies, you made me think about um kind of how you were saying before that all the characters in this movie feel very well-rounded and you feel like you know them. The babies feel like trained actors to me. You know, it's I feel like that that has to do with the fact that the Coen brothers are very specific. Like they have it all planned out. They have their storyboard. They know how they want it to look. So they have a very clear idea of this is how we want this scene to go and we need a shot of the babies doing this. Whereas maybe other directors, because babies can be kind of unpredictable, they might go with the flow a little bit more to adjust to how the babies might be responding, which, you know, to each their own. It works or it works, depending yeah, on, you know, as long as know, the whoever. baby's tr- being treated well, either way it can yeah. turn, turn yeah. out fine. But I think the fact that the Cohen brothers are so specific in terms of what they want and how they want to tell it I feel like they were very clearly specific in how they shot the babies and they kept shooting until they got what they wanted. And the result of that is these babies, like I said, they feel like trained actors. They feel <laughs> like the Coen brothers were like, okay, sit there, make this face now do this. Like, and the babies are following direction. It And it's, it's just so impressive to me how they do that. Um, and I also wanted to make sure we just mentioned that we have this moment where high kind of, gives up and he leaves and Ed's like, no, you will not come back here without a baby. You will go back in and get me a baby. (laughs) And so he goes back in again. um, And then he manages to get Nathan Jr. Um, But yeah, I just, I wanted to make sure that we spent a fair amount of time on this scene because it's, it's my favorite scene in the movie. It's just, it's the perfect combination of, The chaos that exists in this movie with the comedy that exists in this movie with the beautiful cinematography like you said production design you know seeing the characters establishing the characters seeing them be themselves it's just it's it's a masterful sequence I I really really love it um so yeah and then after this, we have the moment that Geneva and I quoted uh, at the beginning of this movie where High gets to the car and gives Ed the instructions. <laughs> These are the instructions. <laughs> These are the instructions of uh, how to take care of a kid. I should have written down the title of the book. I forgot oh, it was to do that. Dr. Spock's
0: uh, Guide for Raising Babies, which is a real and very famous uh, baby book from, I think, maybe the 50s.
1: yeah. So, great, great instructions. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And then we have just this, I don't know, I feel like this scene does a really good job of establishing, at least in my opinion, that high is not the only insane person in this relationship. (laughs) Because I feel like up until this point, Ed kind of seems like, you know, she's this police officer. the more normal, the more responsible. She wants to have kids. She's upset that she can't. You know, obviously when she finds out she doesn't have kids, she has a little bit of a... You know, a funny cry that she does in that scene, but you don't really get a sense that she's a little bit cuckoo as well until <laughs> we have this sequence where she's like, "Get me a baby!" And then, she's- yeah. well, to be fair, I think they had established a little
0: bit earlier that the whole plan to kidnap the baby was Ed's plan in the first place. Hi is very much just going along to make her yes. happy. Yes. Yeah. Also, just a word of... We've said so much about Nicolas Cage and how brilliant he is. A word of appreciation for Holly Hunter, who is fantastic oh, yeah. at this movie. She does such a good job of being the counterweight. And she's just a world-class funny crier. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was telling Tatum before we started recording about the movie Broadcast News, where, which is a great movie. And she does a very funny cry in that as well.
1: Yeah. So I, I just... She really... It, it just establishes this. this relationship between them where she is kind of taking the reins and he's just reacting you know <laughs> he's just along for the ride yeah he he's just reacting in whatever way he can because clearly he cares about her and, and he he feels her emotions and he wants to help her that's why he comes up with the idea of stealing the baby that's why he tries to comfort her when she's like not comfort but she's freaking out saying I love him so much he's like yeah I know you do like I, you know and the first time he says it it's just like I know you do honey And then the second time it's him genuinely being like I know like I know and it's just it's this beautiful relationship where both of them are are kind of crazy but <laughs> yeah. but it works you know mm-hmm. um so they're yeah just
0: the perfect they're crazy but they're just they just feel you know they complement each other in such perfect ways they balance each other out
1: yeah so um after this they go home and they try and uh take a family photo which doesn't really work out (laughs) um it's it's quite a family a funny family photo i like it um but then after they get home with the baby then we cut to a moment where we see hi's ex uh his convict friend's Dicking out of prison, screaming like maniacs, <laughs> which this movie came out what like, um, I don't know,
0: five or six years before the Shawshank, before Shawshank. Redemption, and there's an almost identical scene of what's in Shawshank of like yep. the convicts covered in mud, like in the rain, screaming at
1: the sky, as shot to, by Roger after... Deakins, interestingly. Oh,
0: um, that's right. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's just absolutely. like just nonstop screaming for a very long time just
0: (gasps) just the the visual of them you know they've just tunneled out of prison and so theoretically they're coming out of holes in the ground but the way it's shot and with the rainstorm there's no you can't see the hole it's literally them just poking their heads up above the mud as if they've just been birthed by the earth
1: yep and it's insane yep and And then he pulls the guy out by his foot like he's in there upside down i guess like (laughs) i don't know (laughs) um but yes then they then they they break out of prison and the first thing they do is they go to a gas station and gel their hair back with so much pomade so much (laughs) so much pomade i'm like oh my lanta like that is so much did they bring the pomade with them of course of course (laughs) they did i have no idea they probably stole it i don't know um but either way they both look great um (laughs) covered in mud (laughs) so great um but then they see fit to go over to High's home and be like, hey, what's up? Um, and I, I found it interesting that, you know, again, just kind of uncovering more layers of, of High's character. Um, he, you know, he hears a knock at the door and him and Ed are kind of like, who is that? And then High's like, I'm gonna go check it out. And he picks up this little, you know, revolver gun and he like flips it in his hand, like expertly. I'm like oh okay so this guy knows how to handle a weapon even those weapons have always been unloaded when he's shoplifting (laughs) the way that he like holds this thing and like flips it around I'm like whoa okay that's another aspect to his character that I wasn't expecting you know I would think that high would be someone where he tries to do that and he fumbles it and it falls on the ground or something but it's like no okay that's that's interesting um but yeah so he he goes and he finds his friends who basically just invite themselves in and just decide to stay there now (laughs) yeah they kind of guilt high
0: into letting them stay because ed is like no 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 no, we have a child you guys are escaped convicts you gotta go and they're all like Hey, hi, who wears the pants in this family? And hi, is like, uh, (laughs) he's, he's so much a guy who just he just wants everyone to get along. He just wants to be a to please, you know, the people that he cares about. And so he's trapped in this awkward position between his his old friends and his wife, who's like, no, I don't like this. And she's, of course, completely correct.
1: Well, I find it so funny that Ed, she seems to be a bit delusional in the sense that she's like, we have a family now, you know, this is, <laughs> it we're, is true. we're, we're a, we're a standing family and you know, we're a normal family and we're a healthy family. We can family. only associate and, with decent people. Yeah. Like we can't have ex-cons here. And I'm like, you literally just stole a child. Like, what are <laughs> yeah. you talking about? <laughs> yeah. But she has this idea of just like this. And her and High both, you know, they have this idea of what they want their beautiful family to look like. Mm -hmm. And they're so focused on that, that they don't really recognize that their family's actually incredibly unhealthy and dysfunctional. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so basically they get to a point where, you know, High and Ed agree, you know, two days tops, you know. And so the guys, they get to stay. And then the next morning we see interviews with the Arizonas talking about how their kid is gone. And I wrote down this amazing quote where um, people are asking, they're asking uh, Nathan Arizona questions. And someone mentions, (laughs) someone mentions something about UFOs and he goes, no, (laughs) you. you have don't mention the UFOs. If his, if his mama reads that she's just going to lose all hope. And I'm like, <laughs> what <so> funny, <laughs> like, what do UFOs? Like what? what are they're you talking about like
0: what about the rumors that the kid has been kidnapped by UFOs and he's like don't tell my wife that she's you know we She'll don't want lose her to lose all hope. hope
1: as if like she would believe that UFOs yeah. came and took her child like, so good I just thought that that was a really I, I feel like there's so many throwaway lines in this movie where like people just say it and it comes and it goes and it's like wait a minute that was kind of insane that they just yeah. said, said that um but anyway, so yeah, we have that nice little clip. And then we find out that uh, Ed and High they have good people coming over to visit and meet their child. And so Ed is like, these two guys, they've got to get out of here. Oh, th-
0: There's one thing that I think happens before this that's kind of important, which is that first night after they kidnap the child and then um, the Gail and Evel show up on their door, hi has this dream about this mm, mm-hmm. creepy biker guy. Um, named Smalls, <laughs> who is like, you know, he's like this nightmarish figure who loves torturing small, innocent, <sighs> harmless things. With grenades. <laughs> with grenades <laughs> and rides a motorcycle and has these double shotguns. And um, he feels like what he's done has kind of birthed Smalls onto the world. And then we find out in a few scenes that Smiles, he's Not Smalls wrong. actually exists. So there is this apparently... Hi is like profet- Psychic has prophetic dreams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway.
1: Yes, thank you for reminding me of that. Um, but yeah. So after this, they have a decent family come over to visit. So they kick, they kick, um, they kick the two guys out of the house, and um, the, the people that come over. Apparently, it's uh Hi's boss because he was able to get a job at like a mechanic or, or not mechanic, some sort of like metal company. Yeah, um, something like that. Yeah. And so his, his boss and his wife and their children come over for lunch. <laughs> They're like seventeen like nightmare children.
0: Oh gosh, so many kids.
1: I, I wrote down this one line. I don't remember specifically when it happens, but I think it's something where I think it's when Ed is is kind of telling High, you know, like Evelyn Gail need to get out of here. We have people coming and da da. And High goes, So many social engagements, so little time. <laughs> it's like Okay, um, but yeah. So the family comes over with all these kids, and they're also insane. Um, <laughs> their kids are hitting their car with sticks and running around screaming, um, writing fart on the wall, writing fart on the wall. And apparently, their dad just like sees fit to scream, "Hit the deck, boy!" and throw objects. <laughs> goes like hit the deck boy and he throws i don't even know what it is it's like candy like or, something. or something yeah <laughs> and his kid just like drops to the ground i'm like why i don't know apparently it's just the, di- the dynamic of this family um and then we have his wife just being like oh my gosh you have to have a doctor for this child you don't have a doctor what about you gotta this doctor? Dip- they gotta get their dip tet. yeah <laughs> have you set up the dip tet yet and, and poor ed is like what what no do we have a doctor honey honey we need to get a doctor what about this honey we you know and it's you know obviously this woman we have to say she's she is played by francis mcdormand the one and only great francis the great francis McDormand. mcdormand
0: who's um, of course married
1: to joel cohen this is true um which i kind of love that um but yeah so um then we ha- we have this moment where you know high goes for a stroll With his boss. And so at this point, he's starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed because after um, I can't find oh, Dot. That's Francis McNorman's character's name. Um, after you know, Dot is kind of telling Ed about all these things, and Ed is like, Do we have a doctor? Do we need it? He's definitely feeling overwhelmed. He's very like, Oh my gosh, I was not aware that now I have to take care of all of these things. What am I gonna do? And so he goes walking with his boss and his boss is just talking and he's very clearly not really paying attention to what his boss is saying. And then his boss gets to a point where he's like, you know, I know what it's like. You feel like maybe you've lost the excitement in your life and you don't know where your purpose is anymore and blah, blah, blah. And then he very openly states he's like yeah so me and dot are swingers so you know we could do like a we could make an arrangement where you know like your wife's hot so you know (laughs) and then high inappropriate high is justifiably very upset (laughs) and proceeds to punch him in the face which you know then creates this dynamic where high ends up having to tell ed he's like yeah Pretty sure I lost my job. <laughs> and She's like, "Why? What did he say?" And he was like, "He was
0: provoking me." And Heis like, "What did he say?" And Heis like, "Or yeah, hi's like, never mind. Don't yeah. worry about it."
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> yeah. So after after this sequ- sequence, then we go into the long, uh, very long scene. Oh my god! Of Hi trying to get Huggy's diapers,
0: <laughs> <laughs> trying to rob a convenience store for Huggy's diapers. This yes. is such a good chase scene. And it's so
1: well done. Yeah. So I'm just going to kind of run through the progression of what happens in this chase scene. And then we can break it down as much as we want to. Because it is kind of... It, one thing just kind of rolls into another. Which is es- escalating lunacy. It is a, it is kind of classic Coen brothers in a lot of ways. A lot of their films, they start with something small. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wow. This is this is really big. This is out of control. Oh, my God. It's like, what, Um... But yeah, so hang with me here. Fill in the fill in the the spaces if I forget any moments because I don't have this specifically written down. So I'm like going off of memory. Um, but so he walks in to a convenience store to get some Huggies, but he's he has no intention of paying for them. He's going to steal them, which we get an idea that he's kind of feeling the itch to rob again after having this conversation with his boss who is kind of letting him know like yeah you feel like kind of the you know the adventure's yeah, gone now like you going have back to
0: his old patterns yeah so a, his old comfort zone
1: yeah so he goes in he steals these huggies diapers he runs out he gets in the car he hears the cops coming because the convenience store guy has like a button to push which alerts the the cops that he's being robbed and <laughs> Then they start driving. No, I think he starts running and then he's running from the cops. He drops the Huggies in the middle of the road. The cops are chasing him. They're running. They're driving in the car. All of these things. They're shooting like maniacs. I'm like, I'm pretty sure cops can only shoot in (laughs) self-defense. And they're like running through grocery stores, shooting at all of the innocent bystanders. (laughs) Like, they fully what? run through someone's home. Like he just yes. like crashes through a door, runs through their home, runs out the There's backyard, children, And, the just and they're just them. shooting every I'm like, these are terrible cops. Um, But then he ends up climbing over a fence. He finds out there's a dog in there that's chained. And then he's like, oh, shoot, I have to run away from this dog. The dog breaks loose because the chain like comes out of the ground. So then the dog's chasing him and then the dog starts gathering more dogs. So now it's being chased by lots of dogs and he keeps trying to find his wife but she keeps missing him driving in circles and then he gets picked up by another person and like sits in his truck and then the cops are following them and then he's like oh wait no there's my wife and though and then he like yada 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 he ends up back in the car with his wife they drive by he picks up the huggies (laughs) and they go home um so I did write down this one line from the sequence that I really loved, which again is just hinting at Ed being kind of a little bit delusional. Um, but she's yelling at High when, like when he initially steals the Huggies and she just says to him, we've got a child now. Everything's changed. <laughs> the way she says changed is absolute. I'm like, where did that come from? <laughs> like, she. It's just, it's so shocking to me because she always... She feels so, like, more than anyone else in this film, she feels like the most normal one, kind of. And then she comes out with these moments, and I'm like, oh, no, she's not normal at no. all. <laughs> she's very, like,
0: I don't know, she's kind of on a knife's edge, where it's just, like, she's so, at the beginning of the film, so kind of buttoned up, but you get the sense that there's this deep well of lunacy within her that she's just never allowed herself to express. And then through this whole adventure is her kind of channeling all of that craziness into something that she really really wants yeah. It is so funny how she, when, because she doesn't know that he's going into the convenience store to, to rob it. And then she's like reading this book to the, <laughs> to little Nathan Jr. And she's doing all these funny voices and everything. But then she sees him committing the robbery and she's just like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> and like, you know, after yelling at him for cussing in front of the baby. And then she just like gets into the, like gets in the driver's seat and just like drives off yelling at him. Um, Oh, two things too that. Um, yeah. So in that chase scene, mm-hmm. the part where it's revealed that the little teenage clerk that got robbed has his own gun and he starts shooting. Oh, back. Yes. <laughs> I, yes. I just fully lost it. <laughs> He's just like so gleefully just like firing off. Um, and then I love how because, you know, hi, he tries to get the Huggies from the convenience store. He drops them in the road. And then he's getting chased around. He runs into the grocery store. And then he's like running down the aisles trying to find some Huggies. And he gets a new thing of Huggies. Yes. But then the cop is like blocked off the road. And he has to throw the Huggies at the cop to get away. <laughs> and so he's just like, he just wants the Huggies, you know? Just let him have the diapers
1: for his child. Yeah. Um oh, It's yes. just so
0: like all this craziness just for this like, you know, family-sized pack of diapers is just so funny.
1: It's a brilliant sequence. These... It, it, I think it just further establishes how chaotic this world is because these cops are so terrible. Like, I, yeah, like they are firing
0: fully in suburban area, like into houses, like full in of people, store.
1: people everywhere. <laughs> like it's, it's not, that's not what you're supposed no. to do. Um, You shouldn't be firing at all. You should only fire no. in self-defense. <laughs> he's not doing anything to you. You know, no. he's just running. Yeah. Um. But anyway, so yeah, they make it home um and so then we kind of cut to this sequence the next day where um where Nathan Arizona he finally gets to meet Smalls who kind of comes in and he's like hey you want me to find your child because cops can't do it but I can and he has he has this wonderful quote where he says you want to find an outlaw hire an outlaw you want to find a Dunkin donuts call a cop <laughs> <laughs> and it's so it's so perfect. Um so yeah, Nathan Arizona ends up feeling he's kinda sus. I wonder why. Yeah. Um <laughs> and he's well like, he's
0: fully like attempting to sort of blackmail extort. Extort yes. Nathan in Arizona because he's like, I'm gonna find this kid either way. You can either pay me fifty thousand, which is twice the Amount that was offered in reward money, mm-hmm. or I'm gonna sell this baby on the black market. <laughs> and he reveals, like, he himself was apparently sold on the black market. Yeah. And he's like, that was for thirty thousand dollars, but that was nineteen fifty-four dollars. I'm sure I'd go for get more now or
1: something like he that. He has a tattoo on his arm that says like Mama Don't Love Me or something <laughs> yeah. like that. He's just um, so
0: cartoonishly like terrifying.
1: He's he's a Looney Tunes character. He <laughs> yeah. really is. Um but Nathan Arizona is kind of onto him. He's like, I wonder if you've taken the child because I don't know about this. Yeah. So Smalls leaves. They don't make any sort of agreement. Um so then this starts the craziness of now everyone is chasing after the baby. Everyone is trying. To, it's just crazy. Um, so I forget how it happens. Maybe you well, can remind me. Yeah. So um, the High's boss returns
0: the next day. to right. like, Officially tell him right. that he's fired. But while he's there, he tells him, like, I know you kidnapped that baby. I know that baby's actually Nathan Jr., which Gail and um, Evel here. Gale and Evel over yeah. here. And then they're like, "Well, this baby's valuable, so we're going to now steal it from High and Ed so we can collect the reward money." So now High and Ed are after Gale and Evel to get the baby back. Gail and Evel are going on their own little crime spree trying to rob a
1: a Well, bank. they have they have this great uh confrontation fight sequence in the mobile home where High is <laughs> fighting. Yes. He's like, "No." He's like defending, trying to protect Nathan Jr., which is kind of cute. Um, but it doesn't work. Uh, Gail Their and house Evel. house is fully destroyed. Fully destroyed. Gail and Evel get away. They take Nathan Jr. with them. Um, and then we have this great speech from <laughs> High. He's tied to a chair. Ed comes home, finds him tied up. And High goes into this great speech. where He's like, you were right. I was wrong. You know, this is a family. We got to we got to protect our own and we're together now and blah, blah, blah. Like I will get our son back and we will be the family that we've always wanted to be. I swear to you, honey, I swear to you. you were right. I was wrong. You know, it's this great little monologue where he's like hyping himself up. And then the two of them are like, let's go get him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and... um I, Ed, Hi, or no, Ed is very upset with Hi at
0: this point, by the way. Yes. She's just like, you know, she very much blames him for, you know, the, these two convicts. You, you're, they're your friends. You allowed them to stay here. Now they've kidnapped this child, which, you know, she thinks is, she, you know, her her mindset is like, this is our child, which of course it's not. Um, But yeah, there's there's trouble between these two at this point.
1: Yeah, so then this kind of all, you know, leads into this final chase sequence, which I'm not really going to even go into all of it. It's just a lot of... So um, Glenn and Gail, they kind of leave thinking that they're going to, you know, give this baby back to their parent to receive the reward. But then because Nathan Jr. is so captivating, they're like, wait, the baby's ours. Like, we want to keep the baby. (laughs) Um, And so they kind of really start falling in love with this kid And so they go to (laughs) They go to rob a bank
0: which is the plan that they had had in place before and I love the fact that they're like well we can't leave the baby in the car because like what if we get you know, thrown in jail and the baby will just be sitting out there. So they go to rob the bank and they take the baby with them and they're just like holding this little baby in his in little- a
1: car seat. Car seat. <laughs> they, the baby's just in a car seat the whole time. Yeah. Um so yeah, uh. they walk in, they're like, Everybody freeze, get down on the ground. <laughs> and the guys there's this one guy who's like, Do you want us to freeze or do you want us to get down on the ground? We can't do both. And he's like, Oh, uh, get down on the ground. <laughs> and then and the- freeze. And then they're like, wait, where'd the bank tellers go? Did they leave? And then they're like, no, we're on the ground. You told us to get on the ground. (laughs) like the shot of the empty bank counter and just the voice going, we're on the ground, like you said. (laughs) It made me really laugh. So, um, yes, they, from what I remember, I don't remember why, but they didn't, they don't end up successfully robbing the bank. Is it because the cops? Well, no, they do. They get the money,
0: but the teller's able to put this little canister of dye Um, as like a preventative measure. So as they drive away, they start counting the money and then the dye blows up and they're both covered in like blue dye.
1: But isn't it like before the dye blows up or is it after that they recognize that they left? (laughs) For the second time. They left Nathan Jr. (laughs) at the bank and they're
0: like, oh no. No, the thing is they didn't even leave him at the bank. Twice they put him on top the little car seat on top of the car and then they drive off and the car seat just falls down and little nathan jr is fine he's just sitting in the middle of the road but the two of them are like once they discover they're like ah (laughs) (laughs)
1: yes so two times they they put the baby on top of the car and the car (laughs) seat falls off (laughs) um so yes so when the um when the blue ink or whatever it is kind of explodes over the car they're trying to clean the windshield and then that's when hi and ed kind of drive up and so then they're all meeting in the same place they're like give us our baby back and then small shows up on his motorcycle and then all of them are kind of like what do we do? It's almost kind of like a like a Texas standoff or whatever it's called. Yeah, it's like a Western um, standoff where yeah. Smalls is on his motorcycle with the baby and then High
0: is like High and Ed are facing off against him. And yeah.
1: Yeah. So High ends up having a pretty Im- impressive fight with Smalls. He holds his own, which I didn't expect. Um, I don't know
0: that I would say he holds... He, he's a pretty impressive punching
1: bag. <laughs> Like he, he, really t- he, he really does. He does a t- t- good stuff. job not getting knocked out. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, but yeah, so we end up... he In this kind of close hand-to-hand combat, <laughs> he ends up pulling the... Um, Oh, what do you call it? Uh, the pin out of the grenade. Yeah. He pulls the pin out of the grenade. Because Small-,
0: Small just like has multiple grenades. Just, He's like, loaded with grenades.
1: His best for some reason. Yep. So then Smalls blows up. And uh, what happens with Gail and Evel at this well, point? Well, they just, um
0: they're like, left behind with their car they're not right 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 right, stand up with smalls right which by the way there is one little moment um which i'm curious to get your thoughts on where um right before he blows up smalls high notices this little tattoo that smalls has yeah which we saw at the very beginning of the movie high has a very similar tattoo Mm -hmm. on his own body yeah which doesn't really go explained but i you know imagine there's some sort of symbolic connection between the two of them
1: i think it It makes me think of a little bit like maybe it's a sign that both of them had messed up childhoods or something like that. That that was my gut reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not it it did make me think of which these are two very different movies of very different qualities. I'm not I'm not saying they're even on the same level at all. But it made me think of um, the terrible movie Man of Steel when um, Superman is fighting. Who is it? Uh, Zod or who I don't even remember who it is yeah but the reason they stopped fighting oh no this is Batman versus Superman oh, I think yeah, I know oh yeah about. Superman's fighting Batman I think and then both of them are like your Save mom's Martha. name is Martha why did you say that name it's like oh well I guess we're friends now because we both have a mom who's yeah, named Martha here because hi then blows up smalls right exactly but it made me think of that yeah. um, again two very different movies of very different calibers of quality <laughs> yeah. um, but anyway so yeah, Smalls blows up, uh, and Ed and Nicolas Hai... Cage almost played Super sorry. <laughs> Nicolas Cage almost played Superman. There's Honestly, it probably would have been better in that movie. I would
0: love to see that movie. Um
1: he'll probably do it at some point, let's be <laughs> honest. I'm pretty um, sure they had
0: like a CGI Nicolas Cage Superman show up in that recent awful The Flash movie. Um
1: The, the next the next Batman the movie is Robert Batson and Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I mean I and would not Michael say no. Sarah, oh my gosh, let's make I that movie no. right now. Um <laughs> Hollywood's Weirdos all in one movie. <laughs> um anyway, so yeah, then hi and Ed, they finally have Nathan Jr. back in their um back in their arms, back in their care. And what do they decide to do? They decide to return Nathan Jr. to his home. Yeah. Well, um, there's a
0: really sweet
1: um
0: like Ed's explanation of this is really sweet where she says like you know, this whole time I'd been thinking of this child as ours, but when I when I experienced what it was like for Gail after Gail and Evel kidnapped, you know, little Nathan Jr., I realized that this is exactly what we've done to Nathan Arizona, to you know, to the Arizonas. Like this is not our child. We've we've just done this to someone else, and now I know what it feels like for that to happen to you.
1: Yeah, which is kind of continuing the trend of ed taking the lead and Hyde just being like oh yeah yeah sure yeah let's do that um so they take nathan jr home they put him back in his bed and uh nathan arizona walks into the room and sees them there and it's this really interesting moment where nathan I is kind of so much he's kind of curious as to what's going on because he sees that they're very gentle and quiet and like um You know, and he's like, who are you? (laughs) And basically they tell him, you know, Smalls was actually the one who took the baby. We're returning him. And then Nathan Arizona offers them the reward of $25,000. And they're like, that's, we don't, we don't want it. And he can tell that they're very emotional and very attached to this baby. And so Nathan connects the dots in his mind. He's like, oh, you guys are the ones that took him, aren't you? And I don't think Ed and High actually ever say, yes, we are. But like,
0: like they know they they implicitly say yes, because he asks why. And they explain like, we can't have a child of our our own. That's why we really wanted one.
1: Right. Yeah. So so it just kind of creates this this beautiful moment. And they just kind of ask him, they're like, can we look at him a little bit longer before we go? And Nathan's like, yeah, sure, you can. Yeah. and then they end up leaving and we have this montage at the end um yeah, well it's sorry sorry just to because
0: uh, this this scene really made me tear up yeah it's just this beautiful moment because like you know the whole movie nathan arizona has been this kind of you know slightly scummy stereotype of a businessman he's constantly plugging his his, <laughs> his warehouse at every, every given moment um But there are these little moments where you do see there is a good man underneath all of this who really does care about his family and is, you know, able of kind of empathizing and caring about other people. And so this moment of understanding between them is, I just find it so beautiful because it's like at the beginning of the movie, after the child is kidnapped, we find out that his wife took the other kids to stay at I guess her her parents house or something like that so he's now feeling she was the afraid loss. the ufos would come get them right <laughs> <laughs> but he's feeling the loss of his own family and this he says like she's not going to come back until little nathan Junior is home and we can all be reunited as a family again and so he understands what it's like to really care about family and want to be you un- with your children with your wife to be reunited in in a Place of love and he can see that desire and that capacity in them um and so he has this grace for them you know he's like i'm not going to call the cops you know he he lets them look at him a little more and they also reveal the fact that they are having all these marital difficulties because of the experience they've just been through Ed is really mad at high for his irresponsibility and they're planning to get divorced and nathan arizona advises them just like I, you know, I I see the love between the two of you. Just think about this a little more. Sleep on this. You know, don't do anything right away. Um, and yeah, I just I really loved that sequence between them, and just the grace and understanding between these two, these three people who are so different. Um, but the mo- the 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 fact that they're able to have this moment of, you know, real humanity and understanding, I thought was very beautiful.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the ending subverts expectations because I think, at least in my opinion, because I feel like the tone of the movie suggests that the ending is going to kind of be, it it makes me think of a little bit like um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation where the ending is like the police come through the window and then, you know, because they've kidnapped his boss and then it's like, oh, you know, I feel like given the tone of this movie, the ending would be a little bit more, funny in terms of like, oh, I'm calling the cops. And then it's this this weird like final joke or whatever. But the movie doesn't do that. It ends on a very human, um, gentle sort of note. And I really like that a lot. Um, it's, it's a really great way to put a bow on this whole story um, because this movie is very funny and it is very, um, you know, it, just over the top and ridiculous. But it has, you know, a real a real heartbeat at the center of it. And I think that ending on that note really makes it a lot more, um, a lot more impactful and a movie that you kind of carry with you after it's over. It's not just like, Oh, that was a really fun movie. It's like, that was a fun movie, but also I feel impacted by it, you know? And I think it's just really well done. And the fact that we have this very um, gentle, quiet moment of camaraderie and love with these three people at the end Which then leads into this final monologue where Hai is basically, you know, dreaming about his future and talking about his new understanding of what family is and what the purpose of life is and how he can find joy. And, you know, being a human and a father and and a husband and all of those things, it really is just, it's a beautiful ending that, in my opinion, really subverts expectations. Um, And so... Yeah, I don't know. This movie just ends and it makes me feel very warm inside. I'm like, oh, oh, like that was a fun time. But also like, oh, (laughs) you know, it's I can't even describe
0: it. It's just like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, exactly. It the way it ends is so much like you say, it subverts expectations. It's so much more open ended than I would expect from a movie Mm. like this. Like Mm -hmm. I would expect a movie like this to end with like, oh, you know, They go to prison for six months, but then Ed realizes she's pregnant. And so it's like, you know, they are definitely going to have a baby of their own or something like that, you know, but it doesn't. It ends on this really open note of like, we don't know if we're ever going to be able to have children. We don't even know if we're going to stay together. But High has this sense of new clarity and perspective on life and the sense of hope, you know, he doesn't know if they're ever going to be able to have child, but he has this vision of themselves still together. 40 50 years in the future surrounded by their children and grandchildren and it's so sweet the the vision that he has too of like little nathan jr growing up and then kind of watching from afar and and seeing his his progress and feeling like they may have a you know influenced him even if in some small way it's just so so sweet and yeah, the the final line where he talks about like maybe we need to go somewhere else, maybe Utah. <laughs> I don't so know why that made me laugh. But.
1: I actually pulled up the the monologue here. I want to read oh, it, please. Um, it's it's kind of long, but I think it would be sure. a, a nice way to end this podcast episode, just kind of like on this note. So it says it, it is kind of long, so bear with me, listener. <laughs> but <laughs> it says that night I had a dream. I dreamt I was as light as the ether. A floating spirit visiting things to come. The shades and shadows of the people in my life wrestled their way uh, into my slumber. I dreamed that Gail and Evel had decided to return to prison. Probably that's just as well. I don't mean to sound superior, and they're a swell couple of guys, but maybe they weren't ready yet to come out into the world. And then I dreamed on into the future, to a Christmas morn in the Arizona home where Nathan Jr. was opening a present from a kindly couple who preferred to remain unknown. I saw Glenn a few years later, still having no luck getting the cops to listen to his wild tales about me and Ed. Maybe he threw in one Polack joke too many. I don't know. And still I dreamed on, further into the future than I'd ever dreamed before, watching Nathan Jr.'s progress from afar, taking pride in his accomplishments as if he were our own, wondering if he ever thought of us and hoping that maybe we'd broaden his horizons a little, a little even if he couldn't remember just how they got broadened. But still I hadn't dreamed nothing about me and Ed until the end. And this was cloudier because it was years, years away. But I saw an old couple being visited by their children. And all their grandchildren too. The old couple weren't screwed up. And neither were their kids or their grandkids. And I don't know, you tell me. This whole dream, was it wishful thinking? Was I just fleeing reality like I know I'm liable to do? But me and Ed, we can be good too. And it seemed real. It seemed like us and it seemed like, well... Our home, if not Arizona, then a land not too far away, where all parents are strong and wise and capable and all children are happy and beloved. I don't know. Maybe it was Utah. (laughs) So good. So good. So well written. You know, the
0: way they write the dialogue where it's so distinctly from that character and yet it is kind of the most poetic version of that character, you know, Mm -hmm it's yeah damn it's you Cohen <laughs> 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 ah,
1: how are you so talented
0: <laughs> not fair
1: um but yeah are there any other moments in this movie that you want to talk about before we before we close out um I'm trying to think i mean we we
0: i think we did a very good job of pretty much covering everything and this is not a long movie too it's no like 90 minutes tops yeah Um, and there's just, there's so much that happens. So much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think we did a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm going to jump into critical responses because I'd like to have a little bit of a conversation about this. Um, because a lot, so when this movie first came out, given the reviews I looked at, a lot of people did not like this movie. They didn't get it. That's insane. Um, So, but, but we'll get to that. So this movie has a 69 on Metacritic and is 90% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So I pulled two reviews to begin with uh, that were positive. So one comes from Richard Corliss at Time, and both of these are from 1987, which is when the movie came out. Uh, so this one says, To their sidewinding winding cam and pristine command of screen space, the Coens have added a robust humor, a plot that keeps outwitting expectations, and a surprising dollop of sympathy for their forlorn kidnappers. Which I feel like is everything that we've said you know um so that that review really resonated with me um and then this one is from gene siskel at the chicago tribune and it says the film has an easy target in poking fun at rural folks but it also has a warm message about individual about individuality it's also beautifully photographed so i just wanted to make sure i picked reviews that mentioned like the visuals of it um so now we get into people who don't like this movie. Roger Ebert hated this movie. He hated it. So I pulled, again, this is going to be a long thing that I'm going to read, but I feel like Roger Ebert is just a very famous critic. And so I like to know his interpretations of things. So yeah. I'm just going to read. And generally very thoughtful,
0: even when I when I disagree with him.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to read some uh, a little bit of an excerpt uh, from his review. So here it goes. Um that's one of the problems with Raising Arizona. The movie is narrated by its hero, a man who specializes in robbing convenience stores, but it sounds as if he just graduated from the Rooster Cogburn School of <laughs> Elocution. There are so many, far be it from me's and as in his language, that he could play Ebenezer Scrooge with the same vocabulary, and that's not what you expect from a two-bit thief who lives in an Arizona trailer park. Maybe, of course, he just happens to talk, th- talk that way, Even in this age of homogenized culture, a few people do retain distinctive and colorful speech patterns. That would be a good theory, except that everyone in Raising Arizona talks funny. They all elevate their dialogue to an arch and individual level that's distracting and unconvincing and slows down the progress of the film. And what Raising Arizona needs more than anything else is more velocity. (laughs) Here's a movie that stretches out every moment for more than it's worth until even the moments of inspiration seem forced. Since the basic idea of the movie is a good one, and there are talented people in the cast, what we have here is a film shot down by its own forced and mannered style. The movie cannot decide if it exists in the real world of trailer parks and 7-Elevens and Pampers, or in a fantasy world of characters from another dimension. It cannot decide if it's about real people or comic exaggerations. It moves so uneasily from one level of reality to another that finally we're just baffled. Comedy often depends on frustrating the audience's expectations, but how can it work when we don't have a clue what about what to expect when the movie itself doesn't know what is possible and what is not. Raising Arizona is the new work of the Coen brothers, Joel and Ethan, whose previous film was the superb thriller blood simple. That was a movie that pushed reality as far as it could go within the rigid confines of a well-made thriller. Raising Arizona needs the same kind of restraint. It's all over the map. If the same story had been told straight as a comic slice of life, it might have really worked. I kept thinking of Jonathan Dems, Melvin, and Howard, the film about the gas station owner and the billionaire in which equally unliked events happened, but were very funny because they were allowed to be believable. That is so unbelievably harsh. Like... (laughs) I feel like we didn't watch the same movie.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like he just, and I guess other critics at the time, just were not understanding what the Coen brothers were going for. It's just a mismatch of expectations, you know? Once you understand the Coen brother sensibility, then... This movie is amazing, but especially if this is the first time that you've ever seen something like this, I can understand being like, wait, what is this? Where is this coming from? I I don't understand the balance of fantasy and reality that they're going for. And yeah, I mean, it's this is insane to me, but I I (laughs) guess I, I understand in the sense of like, if you've never seen something done like this before, if you have no idea what these guys where these guys are coming from (laughs) it can be a sort of like this is an alien world you know an alien (laughs) all these people who do not who talk in such strange ways and all these crazy things keep happening like i can't get on its level i just pulled up um and after we finish i'm gonna go and watch it i just pulled up the original siskel and ebert review of Mm -hmm. raising arizona back from 1987 you're aware right that gene siskel and roger ebert had a tv show together where they Mm -hmm. reviewed movies yeah 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 now knowing now knowing that
1: ebert didn't like it and siskel did i'm gonna go watch (laughs) it and, and be
0: really fascinated to see what they say
1: yeah that's actually a good idea um but yeah, so I was quite frustrated when I read that review because I feel yeah, like so he entirely he... missed the point and mm-hmm. criticized it for reasons that I don't think are justifiable. But yeah. whatever, no. he was very he... harsh in his words. I
0: I'm like, okay. I hope he later came around to it. I mean, one, I feel like once you see just one other Cohen brothers movie, I feel like it sh- you should. He'd it seen it should be Blood able to... Simple. Well, one other coat comedic cohen brothers movie like i hope once he saw fargo he was able to click into like oh no no no, no. i see what they're doing
1: but who knows yeah I yeah know. i don't know but anyway but he's not alone like there were lots of reviews of people from the time that were like this movie is boring this movie doesn't make sense this how on all earth could you call this movie boring well the fact that you know there's a quote in this somewhere where he says like th- it needs more velocity i'm like how much more velocity could you possibly have? <laughs> like, if you have any more velocity than this, it's uncut gems. Like, what yeah. Like what do you want? Oh, um, but anyway, so I just thought it, I wanted to mention that, like, there were lots of people at the time that this came out where there were some people that really appreciated it, but there were also a lot of critics that just didn't get it yeah. and That's really didn't like it. So, And it goes um, to show,
0: you know, movies that are panned today could be, um, you know, un uncontested classics of tomorrow.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, Big Lebowski is one of them, you know? Um, Although that's more of a cult classic. That's very, like, you have to be a specific type of person, I think, to love that movie. Um, Not judging those people. Um, But, yeah, okay. So, Geneva, what are your closing thoughts? Is there anything from this movie specifically that's going to stick with you? Um, I mean, like I said, the the closing scene just really
0: got me in a way that i was not expecting so i think that will stick with me um i i really look forward to re-watching this movie i feel like there's with the coen brothers they always do such a great job of balancing movies that are entertaining with some unexpected sort of philosophical and sometimes even spiritual depth and themes and symbols that um are just buried within their movies, and this movie to me is you know, it's mostly a Looney Tunes style romp, <laughs> as we've said many times. But I did get the sense while watching it, I think there's more here that I'm not getting because this is my first watch and I'm still just taking things in. But I think on a th- second and third watch, it's going to be really there's going to be other layers and, and other things that I'm going to get that I'm not necessarily getting now. So, yeah, I'm really glad that I finally got the push to watch this movie, and I look forward to re watching it many times over the years.
1: Yeah, I like I said in the beginning, I think I enjoyed this movie more the second time around. Um, So, yeah, I I hope you watch it again. I think. Yeah, I look forward to that. Um, Yeah, for me, I mean, it's it's still that scene where he's stealing the babies. I mean, it's just (laughs) that scene is so incredible to me. Just how it balances humor with the beauty of how it's shot with the contrast of the chaos upstairs and the complete. And utter, like, just complete chillness downstairs, you know. I feel like
0: it's just such a good example of the fact that if you're a talented filmmaker and you're willing to really think things out and take the time, set up properly, you know, think creatively, you can make a really funny set piece out of basically anything. Like yeah. a guy looking at five babies in a crib and trying to choose one just becomes this absolute masterwork of insanity.
1: Well, yeah, I mean it's it's top to bottom. It's the way it's shot, it's the acting, it's the costumes, it's the production design of that scene, it's the score that's happening the whole time. It's, you know, all of it is just so well done. Um and I just have visuals in my brain of just the camera smoothly following this baby as it crawls on either. It's just it's so good. Um, I will say though, in addition to that, I think the ending hit me a lot more this second time. The first time around, like it didn't impact me as much. Um, but this time I was like, oh wow, like maybe it's cause I'm, I'm older and I think more about what, what is, what do I want for my life? Um, and will I ever achieve <laughs> what I want in my life? Um, but.
0: Which, by the way, just a random thought too is, um, there's a movie that I put on the queue and then later it off, And I was like, we'll do this later. Um, but now having watched this, I'm like, I feel like we need to do this soon because I'm really curious to see what Tatum thinks of it. It's called Sullivan's Travels and it's by Preston mm. Sturgis, who is a big influence on the Coen brothers. And I feel like it, it shares that sort of, you know, it, it's very much an influence on their sensibility of comedic chaos, but then like juxtaposing comedic chaos with like an unexpectedly poignant and empathetic note.
1: Yeah, I'd be yeah, down to watch I, it, which I love
0: about all the the Cohen brothers movies.
1: Yeah, um, so yeah, those are the things that I think are going to stick with me this second time around. Um, yeah, I told Geneva before we started recording, I want this movie to be in a regular rotation for me. I think I want to start watching it more often, um, and even and showing it to people because I think a lot of people haven't seen this movie. It's not, uh, it's not one of the more notable Cohen brothers for people who aren't like, film nerds who dive into their whole filmography, you know? Um, so, yeah, I I really love this movie. I think it's just so impressive that the Coen brothers have had such a handle on their style and what they want from the very beginning, even though they had literally zero filmmaking experience. Some people just have it, and that's good for them. Um, well, I mean...
0: Zero professional filmmaking experience. I'm sure they were like shooting movies in their backyard as kids growing up, or
1: yeah, I should know. go back. I listened to uh the Team Deacons podcast, they had Joel Cohen on it a few years ago. Mm. I don't remember what he said though about how he got started because the first question they always ask is, How did you get to mm. where you are now? I'll have to go back and listen to that, yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I hope everyone enjoyed this discussion. I really enjoyed it, um, but. Yeah. So, Geneva, uh what are we talking about next week? We are talking What are we talking about next week? Oh, yes.
0: <laughs> next week we are covering a favorite film. Classic oh God, classic film. Just such a, you know, such a staple of my my childhood. We're covering Pirates of the Caribbean: The Curse of the Black Pearl. The from Black 2003. Pearl.
1: Yes. Such a great. I'm such I'm great I'm, I'm excited to talk about I'm it. I'm so excited. I love this movie um but yeah so come back next week to hear our discussion about pirates and uh yeah we'll talk to you then bye everybody bye everybody thanks for listening if you want to get in touch with us you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com our theme song was composed by joel rushton and our podcast graphic was designed by kara shin if you like this show and want to hear more please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.